Well, if you will, open with me in your Bibles to the book of Psalms, Psalm 1. Psalm 1. This is what we will read together this morning as we begin going through the book of Psalms, but we're not going to focus primarily on Psalm 1 this week. We will dive into this psalm in more detail next week. But what I want to do this morning is to give an, an overview of the whole book, of all of the psalms, of the message that is being communicated throughout. Because as we understand the whole book, it informs us in how we are to read the individual psalms as we move through them. So we're looking at the big picture this morning, uh, but I want to begin our time together by just reading Psalm 1, and then we'll uh, begin with a word of prayer. So Psalm 1, beginning in verse 1, you will notice there is no um, author that is given here. And, and yet, just as a, as a, as a way of, of noting this, Psalm 1 and 2 are an introduction to the whole book. Psalm 2 is called a Psalm of David in the New Testament. Psalm 1, therefore, is likely the same. But Psalm 1, beginning in verse 1, we read David writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So let's go to the Lord again in prayer. Father, we rejoice in your word that it reveals to us clearly who you are, reveals Christ to us, it reveals your many great and sweet and precious promises, and it shows us how you have been faithful to those promises and how you will continue to be faithful, so that all who trust in you, trust in your word, trust in Christ can be sure that Christ's kingdom will reign supreme and that eternal life is to be found in him. 
pray, Lord, for our time through the Psalms. That as we begin going through these songs and, and prayers that were lifted up to you and that are about Christ, that they would show us Christ more clearly, that they would minister to our own souls, that we would hold on to them dearly as we await the return of Christ. We need your help. We need your illuminating work of the Spirit with us. And so we pray, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the book of Psalms has no doubt been a book that Christians have cherished since the very beginning, since the earliest days of Christianity, of the coming of Christ, the founding of the church, on the foundation of Christ and the apostles. It is the most quoted book in all of the New Testament. John Calvin described the book as an anatomy of all of the parts of the soul. For he says, there is not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not here represented as in a mirror. Martin Luther said of the Psalms, he says, the Psalter ought not to be, a, or excuse me, ought to be a precious and beloved book because, note, it promises Christ's death and resurrection so clearly and depicts his kingdom and the condition and nature of all Christendom that it might well be called a little Bible. Anthony Gilby, one of the translators of the Geneva Bible in 15. 60 wrote instructions to Christians as they read through the Psalms. And he says to Christians, he says, meditate on these Psalms by the same Spirit with David so that you might feel true comfort in all troubles of mind and body as David did. And so in the end, be crowned in the heavens with David and reign forever with Christ, our spiritual David, in everlasting glory. For a very long time, Christians have seen the Psalms as a book that speaks most clearly of Christ, as well as David's own life and even of the trials and of the joys and comforts of the Christian life. But for a variety of historical reasons, many Christians today approach the Psalms in a very restrictive manner. Because of the influence of certain philosophies of the Enlightenment and higher criticism, which fundamentally rejects the idea of prophecy, the Psalms were subjected 
to methods of interpretation which sought only to place them within their possible historical and religious context that gave rise to their composition, which then resulted in conclusions that the Psalms were only about experiences in the ancient world and nothing more. They have no prophetic sense to them. The influence of higher criticism, even on the church, has resulted in Christians reading the Psalms as if they're only about David or some other writer's life, and therefore they have little use for us today, or at least it's hard to discern what that use or meaning or application would be for us today. And most assuredly, they do not speak about Christ with the exception of some that are perhaps understood specifically as messianic psalms. But that's a a small number. So many Christians have a hard time seeing Christ in the psalms as Christians for a very long time had seen. One of the, uh, on the opposite end of the spectrum, you also have those who read the Psalms as if everything the Psalms say is about something in their own life. It was a very sort of hyper-personal reading of the Psalms, depending on what season you're in, right? You have a Psalm that is for your own suffering, you have a Psalm that is about your joys, you have a Psalm about your desires, and it goes on and on. And those who tend more towards this more personalized reading likewise never see Christ in the Psalms because all they see is themselves. Well, friends, as we begin working through the Psalms together, with the help of God, I want you to be able to see that this is a book that, as Luther said, is about Christ and is about His kingdom seen chiefly through the life of David, who was a pattern and a type of the one who was to come. And then, by virtue of our union with and our submission to Christ, it is a book that is a mirror for our own souls, as it does describe the many afflictions that the righteous will go through. And the righteous being those who have aligned themselves to the Messiah, to the Christ. This morning, I want to help you see all three of these aspects by giving you an overview of the book as a whole. What is the big picture of the whole book of Psalms? The Psalms big picture. If you want to write this down or you want to remember this, you could could summarize it in this way. The Psalms big picture is that it tells us the hopeful history of redemption that centers upon David, David's son, the Messiah, and his people. It is the hopeful history of redemption 
that of course centers upon the person of David, and by extension, David's greater son, and from that upon those who follow the Messiah. And so how do we, how do we see this? How, how, how is this coming out through the book of Psalms? Well, in order to see this, we need to recognize and understand how the Psalms were put together. The book of Psalms is not just a random collection of ancient Psalms that were put together haphazardly with, with no intent. There is an intentional structure to it. There are 150 Psalms organized into five books. Book one is comprised of Psalms 1 to 41. Book two is Psalms 42 to 72. Book three is 73 to 89. Book four is Psalms 90 to 106. And then finally, we have the fifth book, which is 107 to 150. We know as well that there were earlier collections and groupings of Psalms, because book two tells us at the end of Psalm 72, the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended which tells us book one and book two formed an early collection of psalms largely written by David. And of course, there are other collections in later books of the psalms, like the Psalms of Ascent, from Psalms 120 to 134. These psalms looked forward to the return from exile and the establishment of Christ's kingdom. The final collection of all of these psalms, therefore, was gathered together sometime after the return from exile. The tradition has it actually that, that Ezra, you know Ezra from Ezra and Nehemiah, Ezra was the one who compiled all of these psalms together as we have them in the 150. The point being that when these psalms were collected to form the book as we have it now, there was an intentional ordering to them. Ezra, or someone perhaps who, who worked closely with him, took these psalms, took these various collections, and put them together with a purpose. The inspired editor wanted to communicate and teach something about the truths and promises of God through the arrangement of the Psalms throughout. And the basic message that is communicated through their arrangement is about the hopeful history of redemption. It is that God will keep His promises every last one of them. It is that his Messiah, the anointed king, will save his people, will establish his kingdom, will conquer his enemies, and finally receive praise from all creatures in heaven and on earth. Now, 
As we make our way through each individual psalm, I'll draw this point out in more detail. But again, this morning, I want to give you this big picture to help you see this story of redemption that's being communicated throughout the psalms. And we begin, of course, in the very beginning, in Psalms 1 and 2. As I said earlier, these two psalms together function as an introduction to the whole book. And in Psalm 1, of course, we begin with the blessed man. We begin with the Torah of the Lord, or the law of the Lord. We begin with an Eden-like image and a conflict between the righteous and the wicked. Or we might say, as we're thinking about the very beginning of Genesis, the conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. The blessed man in Psalm 1 conducts himself as a king. The king of Israel, we know from Deuteronomy 17, was instructed to have his own copy of the Torah, his own copy of the law, which he would read and live by every single day. He was instructed specifically to meditate on this law day and night. And if he does, all that he does will prosper. This also, in the beginning of of this psalm, we have an intentional reference to what God said to Joshua before Joshua led the people of Israel into the promised land. Though Joshua, of course, was not officially a king, he certainly served as the head of all of Israel, like, like Moses, and he certainly typifies the greater king to come. But God said to Joshua, Joshua chapter 1, verse 8, he says this, he says, this book of the law, this Torah, shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. So this blessed man is to be a king-like man, a royal figure who carries out the will of the Lord on earth. Furthermore, when he is described, he is described as a well-watered tree who is planted by streams of water. And when we are hearing this imagery, we are reminded about Adam, the first man, the first king who was tasked with carrying out dominion on the earth in obedience to the word of the Lord, who was then placed in a garden with many trees and with streams running through it. We'll look at all of this in in more detail next week, but the point is that when we begin with Psalm 1, we begin in a garden. And we begin with a blessed man who is called to act as a king, who is called to oppose the wicked, and who is called to obey the Torah of the Lord. In Psalm 2, we are then introduced to the Messiah. 
the Lord's anointed king. And from the vantage point of Genesis, the seed of the woman who would crush the serpent and have victory over all his enemies. And in the psalm, this is, of course, exactly what he's described of the Messiah, of the Son. The anointed king carries out the rule of the Lord on earth such that when men, when kings, when rulers oppose that king, they are also simultaneously opposing the Lord himself because the reign of the king is the reign of the Lord. The rebellious nations in Psalm 2 plot against the king, but they do so in vain. And it's in vain because the Lord swore an oath to David that one of his offspring would rule forever, and the Lord would be a father to him, and the king would be a son to him. Because he made that promise, no matter how many rulers, no matter how many kings try to destroy the reign of Messiah, they will utterly fail. Because God, being the omnipotent God, will carry out his word on the earth. But we are reminded even here of that first promise that was made to David when God made a covenant with David. We are reminded of that promise that the Lord would be a father to David's son and that king would be a son to the Lord. We're reminded of that when we read in verse 7 of Psalm 2, the Lord saying to the king, to the Messiah, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. The nations will either be conquered by the Messiah or they will submit to him and pay homage to him as they, we are told, kiss the Son. And all who submit and all who take refuge in him, like the blessed man of Psalm 1, they too will be blessed. You are blessed by uniting yourself to the Messianic King. So, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 introduces us to the great promises of the Bible concerning a royal king who will rule according to the Torah of the Lord, carrying out the will of the Lord and truthfully bringing about an Edenic-like state over all the earth. Most all of the Psalms that then follow in the first two books, from Psalm 3 to Psalm 72, revolve around the life of David through a mixture of thematic and chronological events in his life. These include things like his sufferings from his enemies, like Absalom, from, from Absalom and from Saul. These include things like the establishment of his throne 
and the throne of the Lord in Zion. His sins, his repentance, his confession, and his victories over the nations. Book 2 then ends with a psalm of Solomon, which speaks about the global reign of the Messianic king and all of the covenants of God reaching their fulfillment in that king. When we come to book three, so if, if books one and two are largely following the life of David, book one following his sufferings as he rises to the position of king, book two following his time after he has become king, when we come to book three, these psalms largely trace the reign from Solomon to the final exile of Judah. There is a constant downward spiral where the wicked appear to be gaining the upper hand. The temple repeatedly comes under assault from the enemies of God, as we read earlier from Psalm 74, read as well in Psalm 79. The temple is constantly being under assault. It is destroyed until we arrive finally at Psalm 89, which is a lament over the fact that the people of Israel have now come under God's judgment and they are exiled. They are not in the land. The temple is gone. The throne has been destroyed. The psalmist of Psalm 89, Ethan the Ezraite, reflects throughout this psalm on the promises that God made to establish David's throne. But now that the throne has been destroyed and the temple is no longer standing and the people have been exiled, he laments to God in verse 39. He says, you have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. You've made these promises. His throne will last forever. And as we're looking around and have been banished from the land, there's no throne. You've cast us off. You've spurned your covenant. And he wonders in verse 46, how long, O oh Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? That's the end of book three. And so book three ends on a note of despair over the destruction of Jerusalem, the exile of the people of God, and the concern over how God will keep his promises. How will his word be fulfilled? Will he fulfill those promises? Now, throughout the prophets, and, and even going back to Moses, the book of Deuteronomy, God had promised that these things would happen. God had warned them repeatedly that this destruction that these curses, that this exile would take place. That this was a judgment 
against rebellious Israel. But the prophets also, as they spoke of the inevitability of these curses to fall upon them, they likewise spoke of a day when God would do a new work of salvation. And the way that they spoke of it was as if a new exodus would take place, only on a much grander scale. In Jeremiah chapter 16, for example, in verses 14 and 15, the Lord said that a day was coming that would eclipse the first exodus such that no one would say any longer when they're swearing an oath to the Lord and they're remembering the greatest work of salvation in Israel's history at the Exodus. They would no longer swear by that event. He says that they would no longer say, as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives, who brought up the people out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them. This day, this new exodus to come, would likewise come with the rise of David, the shepherd king. It would come with the inauguration of a new and better covenant, one that was better than the old. And it would finally culminate in a new heavens and a new earth with all creatures praising the Lord. And this promise, this basic idea of a new and greater exodus to come, this is essentially the story of books four and five of the Psalms. Book four begins with Psalm 90. This is a Psalm of Moses anticipating this new exodus to come. Moses is going to arise. And Moses in this psalm is again interceding for the people, calling upon the Lord. Psalm 90 verse 13 saying, have pity on your servants. They are under judgment. They're in exile. And Moses here is interceding on their behalf. Have pity on your servants. Then we come to Psalm 91. And Psalm 91 speaks of this individual who dwells in the shelter of the Most High and who abides in the shadow of the Almighty. And this individual has victory over all of the wicked. Verse 8 we read, You, speaking of this man, you will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. This is a psalm, likewise about the king, and a psalm that Satan himself used to tempt Jesus to prove that he was truly the Son of God in Matthew chapter 4. For this is the psalm that promises that the angels would guard him in all his ways. And you'll remember in the temptation that Satan is saying, you know, cast yourself off of the temple and the angels will lift you up. And the Lord Jesus says, you you shall not test the Lord. Then we come to Psalm 92. 
In Psalm 92, we have a psalm for the Sabbath. Again, envisioning this coming new exodus with anticipation that God would again give his people rest. Then in Psalms 93 to 100, the Lord throughout these Psalms is praised as the king who will enact his reign. Indeed, he is the Lord who is sovereign over the floodwaters. We read in Psalm 93, verse 4, for example, mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. It's happening again. He's parting the sea. He's sovereign over the floods. He is bringing salvation through these waters because he is greater than the waters. And then book four ends with the psalmist calling upon the Lord to do these very things, to, to, to bring about this new work of salvation again. Psalm 106, verse 47, we read there the psalmist, Save us, O Lord our God, Gather us from among the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. You have promised these things to come. You've promised a new Moses, a prophet like Moses. You've promised a king. You've promised to deliver us through these waters of judgment. Save us, O Lord, from the nations. Towards the beginning of book five, we are then introduced to David once again through a series of Davidic Psalms. The vast majority of the explicit Davidic Psalms are in books one and two. But now, David makes an appearance again. And this, in the construction of the book, is not a coincidence. The promise of the prophets was that David would arise. That is, the greater David, the Messiah, the offspring of David. And he would be the one who establishes the reign of God and brings salvation for his people. In Psalm 108, David is determined to see God glorified. He trusts in him. And he trusts that God will tread down his foes and he praises the Lord among the nations. He is, he is sending out praise. He is sending out word to the nations. He is bearing witness to the greatness of God. In Psalm 109, David then suffers. People speak against him. They plot. They seek to do evil to him in response to his love. He has cared for them. He has shown them concern. He has shown them love. And they are using that against him. And then David, in that psalm, singles out one of these wicked men as an example. And he calls him to stand trial before the Lord. And he curses him before the Lord. Verse 7, we read there, it says, When he is tried, let him come forth guilty. Let his prayer be counted as sin. And then in verse 8, 
May his days be few, and may another take his office. Which, I will remind you, is the very same text that the apostles were using with reference to the betrayer, Judas, when they were appointing someone else to serve in his place because the man who had dipped his hand in the, in the bread and who had, eaten with the, who had eaten with the Lord, who had been with the Lord, who had been a friend to the Lord, betrayed him, used his love against him, betrayed him with a kiss. Now he's being replaced. So Psalm 109, David suffers. And then we come to that glorious psalm, Psalm 110, which is repeatedly quoted throughout the New Testament with reference to Christ. In Psalm 110, David is speaking about his own Lord, the promised Messiah, his greater offspring, who is now at the right hand of the Lord. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This is what we read from earlier when Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost and he's saying, this happened. The Lord ascended on high. He is seated at the right hand of God. We also find throughout this psalm that this Lord, that this king will not only be a king, but he will be a king priest. Verse 4, the Lord has sworn and he will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So the, the king will be a royal priest whose priesthood will be even greater than that of the Levites. For his priesthood, unlike theirs, will remain forever. Meaning that a day will come when the priesthood of Aaron and the Levites will come to a conclusion because this better priesthood with a better sacrifice, namely the sacrifice of Christ himself, will inaugurate a new and better covenant. This psalm, Psalm 110, is then followed by a series of psalms praising and giving thanks to the Lord for remembering His covenant forever. And it culminates in the Lord giving the King, who is described in Psalm 118 as the stone the builders rejected, victory over His enemies. It culminates in the Lord returning to the temple and people worshiping Him there. Then we have Psalm 119 which celebrates the goodness of the Torah of the Lord, which of course is a disposition that was promised would occur in all of the people of God under the new covenant. They would love His law. We would sing, we would meditate, we would rejoice in the Torah of the Lord. It makes us wise, it gives us instruction, it bears witness to Christ. This was promised to take place in the new covenant. His people will love the law, love him from the heart, unlike what was the case under the old covenant, when so many who were part of that covenant were spiritually dead 
and hated and despised his law. After Psalm 119, we then come to the Psalms of Ascent, which both anticipate and celebrate the return from exile, the return of the Lord to Jerusalem, the establishment of the throne of David and the people being able to worship in his presence forever. Psalm 122, verse 1, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. How long had we been waiting for this? You you had cast us out. We were wondering how this covenant would, would be fulfilled. And here the day has come. Let us go up to the temple of the Lord. Psalm 125, verse 1, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. Zion will not be reduced to rubble. It will endure throughout all time. Psalm 126, verse 1. I mean, you could just hear the words of the people of God longing for this day to come when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion. We were like those who dream. There's there's nothing better. Is Is this real? It feels like a fantasy. We were those who dream. And then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Psalm 132, verse 8. Arise, O Lord. Go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Which, of course, was a representation of the Lord's presence among His people. Be with your people. Verses 13 and following. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for His dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation. And her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed, my Messiah. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. The Messiah will reign. He will be established and no one will stop his kingdom. You see, friends, that these psalms, by what they are saying, And by how they are arranged, they are projecting the life and accomplishments of David into the future so that we are to understand David's life as a pattern, as a type of the greater one who was to come. That is the very reason why these Davidic Psalms are placed 
in book four and in book five so that as we move through them and as we are wondering, Lord, you've, you've cast off the throne. You've cast off your covenant. We are then reintroduced to David. He's back. And he's going to establish the throne of God on earth. Just as God had established his rule on earth through David and his throne, and Zion was made the place of his dwelling, his dwelling place, and, and David was given victory over his enemies, so will it be the case, the Psalms are saying, that this will happen again, only on a grander scale. After the lament of Psalm 89, has God cast us off forever? The answer that is given is by no means. Because the shepherd king will arise and he will suffer like David, but he will conquer. And the throne of David will be established through him. He will be the horn of David. He will reign in God's kingdom and his kingdom will be one with all of the nations being subjected to him. Which leads to the very end of the Psalms, which concludes with the repeated refrain, hallelujah, hallelujah, praise the Lord, all creation in heaven and on earth is called to praise the Lord. Psalm 148, verses 1 and 1 to 4. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him in the heights. Praise Him, all His angels. Praise Him, all His hosts. Praise Him, sun and moon. Praise Him, all you shining stars. Praise Him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Verses 11 to 14, kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all the rulers of the earth, young men and maidens together, old men and children, let them praise the name of the Lord, for His name alone is exalted. His majesty is above earth and heaven. He has raised up a horn for His people. It has happened. He's here. Praise for all His saints, for the people of Israel who are near to Him. And then the very last line of the psalm. Psalm 150, verse 6. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Amen. All creation in heaven and on earth, giving the Lord and His anointed the worship that is due His name. This book, friends, this book of Psalms is very much so a prophetic composition. We begin in the garden and we end with all creatures praising the Lord. And along the way, there are ebbs and flows. There are ups and downs. There are afflictions of the righteous and seeming victories of the wicked. 
But in the end, the message that is delivered is clear. God will establish the throne of the Messiah. And in establishing His throne, the throne of heaven will also be the throne on earth. And by composing the Psalms to tell this story of redemption, with David being the central figure in the beginning and the one who re-emerges to establish God's kingdom after the exile, both David and the editor, probably Ezra, are showing us that David's own life was a type, was a pattern of the one who was to come. His life was a pattern that would be recapitulated in the life of David's offspring, the Messiah, so that as you read David's words throughout the Psalms, unless David is speaking in the third person about the Messiah, the words of David are the words of Christ. Which is why, this is why, friends, so often throughout the New Testament, throughout the Gospels, Jesus quotes the psalm, quotes the words of David as his own. Not, as, as David wrote, they're his. He hangs on the cross, you'll remember. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Into your hands I commit my spirit. These are the words of David in the Psalms. And at the same time, they are the words of Christ. Because David's life would be the life of Christ. Indeed, David spoke prophetically about Christ as he spoke about many of the events in his own life, explaining how Psalm 16 was fulfilled by Christ. Peter said of David in Acts 2.30, what we read from earlier, he said, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This is how you read the Psalms. These words of David are the words of Christ. And so friends, we are to first, as we approach these, these Psalms, as we approach this book, we understand them first to be initially the words of David, but second, they find their fullest and are given their fullest meaning and fulfillment in Christ, David's greater son. And then third, as we who are united to Christ by faith, many of these Psalms will, will likewise describe our own affliction. I mean, Jesus himself promises that much of the sufferings he endured would be endured by his own people. You must take up your cross and follow me. 
we will find as well in these psalms that many of them will describe our own afflictions, the crosses that we will have to bear, the trust in the Lord that we have to have in the face of enemies. And so they become for us instruction in how we are to respond, in how we are to pray to the Lord, how we can rest in Him, and they are comforts as they remind us of the steadfast love of God and the sure promise that He will accomplish His purposes. And in the end, all creation will praise Him. All throughout the Bible, all throughout the Old Testament, we see these patterns happening again and again and again. Abraham, a covenant partner with the Lord, goes down into Egypt, has a conflict with Pharaoh, then leaves with his life and the life of his wife. Israel, covenant partners with the Lord, are down in Egypt. They are suffering under the tyranny of Pharaoh, and then the Lord rescues them and brings them out of Egypt. Jesus, born in the midst of persecution, family takes him down to Egypt, and then at the right time, he comes up out of Egypt so that it might be fulfilled what the prophet Hosea said, out of Egypt I called my son. These patterns occur again and again. And in the life of David, we see the same thing. And the way that David suffered, so also will Christ suffer. Such that when we read David's words, these are indeed the words of Christ. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. I'm going to ask that as we move through this book, that most especially we would see more of Christ and understand in more depth what he indeed accomplished on our behalf. Let's go to the Lord. Father, you are the sovereign God over heaven and earth, over all of history, orchestrating all events in the world to reach their ultimate end in the universal reign of Christ over all things. And Lord, as I pray, I pray that as we, as we move through this glorious book that has ministered for so long and so well to the saints of God, that you would give us eyes to see the beauty of Christ all the more. That we would be men and women who kiss the Son, unite ourselves to Him, and thus, as we take our refuge in Him, find ourselves blessed. So, Lord, speak to us, we pray, through Your Word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.